All right, let's begin. Ezra 10. Let's read this together. Uh, While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a huge crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children, gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up. This matter is in your hands. We will support you. So so take courage and do it. So Ezra rose up and put the leading priests and Levites and all Israel under oath to do what had been suggested. And they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from, then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the room of Jehoanan, son of Eliashib. While he was there, he ate no food and drank no water because he continued to mourn over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. A proclamation was then issued throughout Judah and Jerusalem for all the exiles to assemble in Jerusalem. Anyone who failed to appear within three days would forfeit all his property in accordance with the decision of the officials and elders and would himself be expelled from the assembly of the exiles. Within the three days, all the men of Judah and Benjamin had gathered in Jerusalem, and on the 20th day of the ninth month, all the people were sitting in the square before the house of God, greatly distressed by the occasion and because of the rain." Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful. You have married foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. Now honor the Lord, the God of your ancestors, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples around you and from your foreign wives. The whole assembly responded with a loud voice, You are right. We must do as you say. But there are many people here, and it is the rainy season, so we cannot stand outside. Besides, this matter cannot be taken care of in a day or two because we have sinned greatly in this thing. Let our officials act for the whole assembly. Then everyone in our towns who has married a foreign woman come, come. Then let every, everyone in our towns who has married a foreign woman come at a set time along with the elders and judges of each town until the fierce anger of our God in this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, son of Ashel, and Josiah, son of Tikvah, supported by Meshulam, and Shabbatai the Levite opposed this. Um, so the exiles did as was proposed. Ezra the peace selected men who were family heads, each one from family division, and all of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to investigate the cases, and by the first day of the first month, they finished dealing with all the men who had married foreign women. I am going to stop there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the ways you've been speaking to us throughout this series in Ezra. We thank you, Father, even in 2022, the way you've been speaking to us just about your worthiness to be worshipped with all of our lives. And so, God, we ask that you would use this message in Ezra 10 to once again highlight your worthiness and move within our hearts this desire to make every area of our lives a worship to you. We thank you, God, so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, you know, we've come to the last chapter, finally, of Ezra. And to me, it's been a pretty good journey. Has it been a pretty good journey for you guys? 
You know, we've learned that Ezra is all about living this life of worship, a, wor- a life of that's centered upon the worthiness of God. And so I guess, you know, as a pastor, as a leader, I'm always like, I wonder, now that we're closing up our series on Ezra, are people's lives actually becoming a worship to the Lord? And, and hopefully that's a question you can ask yourself, you know, am I, am I really living out a life of worship? And if the answer is yes, that's awesome. But if the answer is no, I want you to tell your CG leader, or I want you to tell me. You know why? Because, um, you know, we don't run services just to run services. We really want your lives to change. We really believe that all of the things that we do, whether it's a CG or whether it's a sermon, you know, we want God to use to change your life so that you could live out the life that you were created for and saved for. You know, and that's what we talk about every single week. And if my sermons are not hitting the mark, you got to tell me so I can improve, you know, and so we can do better together. Let's worship God together. I know in my life, it's been touching me very powerfully, you know, along with this ankle injury that I have, you know, this series coupled with that really has been allowing me to question a lot of areas of my life and really asking if those areas really worship God or not. And it's given me the ability to start changing things little by little to make them a worship to God. And I hope that's what's happening in your life as well. You know, um, and so, you know, all these lessons that we talked about, the biggest lesson, obviously, that we're really gaining from Ezra is that our lives are called to be a worship. You know, our whole lives are to be a worship to the, whether you're working at work or whether you're studying in the classroom or whether you're hanging out with your parents or whatever you might be doing, watching Netflix Saturday at 3 a.m. You know, that's supposed to be a worship too. everything that we do. And I love that this whole book is dedicated to that, because all those lessons were really portrayed very powerfully in this whole book. You know, back in chapter one, we saw God move the heart of this evil king, right? King Cyrus of, Bab- of Babylon. And he said all the, all the Israelites were supposed to go back to establish a temple. Why? Because God wanted his people to center their lives upon worship. They wanted him to be the center of their lives once again. And then all of a sudden, in chapter 10 or chapter 7, God moves the heart of King Artaxerxes to then send Ezra the priest to go to Jerusalem so that their lives of worship can grow and can deepen with, you know, God's word. And so that's exactly his purpose. But when he got there back to Jerusalem, Ezra did, he saw that these Israelites had been living unfaithfully. And the way that they had been living unfaithfully was they had married uh, foreigners who worship other gods. And so um, from top, from the top leaders all the way down the ladder, the Israelites had been living unfaithfully by marrying foreigners who worshiped other gods. And so Ezra, looking upon this, his heart is absolutely torn and broken. He tears his clothes, literally. He tears the hairs out of his head, literally. He's absolutely confused, doesn't know what to do. But... Um, the great part of chapter nine is that it ends by him saying, but don't worry because there's always hope in the righteousness of God. And that's where we ended in chapter nine. So if now we get to this last chapter of Ezra 10 and it's a chapter of repentance, right? Which is good. If you find that there's sin, you should repent. So it's awesome. But quite honestly, the way they repented is a little bit disappointing and it's a little bit confusing. And I'll get to that, you know, in a minute, but it's a little bit of a confusing chapter. It kind of ends on a down note in my personal opinion, but I think that's what life's about anyway, right? Life's not perfect. Um, So what I'd like to do in this sermon is very, very simple today. I want to retell the story, uh, if you didn't get it, and then I want to share a few points of commentary and lessons 
on repentance, and hopefully it'll help you um, practice repentance better in your life, which I think is an essential part of our faith walk. So this story starts off really well in Ezra chapter 10. You know, Ezra and the leaders are praying. They're confessing. They're weeping before God. That's great, right? Praise the Lord, right? It's awesome. You know, they're mournful over their sinfulness, which is awesome. And then one of his leaders, Shechaniah, clearly states in verse two, he says, you know, our people married foreigners, people who who worship foreign gods. And then he says something even greater, but he says, but even now, as dreadful as the situation is, even now, there is hope for Israel. Complete side note, um, one thing you always have to know, and we talked about it in Ezra chapter 9, because of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God, no matter how bad your sin is, no matter how much you may have sinned, there is always hope in God because of what Jesus Christ did for us, okay? We talked about that in the last chapter. Please go to that. So, so far, so good. Everything's going really, really well. But then all of a sudden, starting from verse 3, it kind of goes a little pear-shaped because um, this guy Shechaniah then gives Ezra this radical suggestion, okay? And this is what he basically says. He says, if the sin is that our people married foreigners, and if marrying foreigners is the sin, then I got it. Why don't we just divorce all of our people from the foreigners? If they had any kids from the foreigners, let's get them out of here too. Let's literally clear our whole city of any foreigners. And then we won't have any sin. That's what he says. And then he says to Ezra, Ezra, this is your job, man. I know it's a tough job to do, but don't worry, we're behind you. Be tough, be strong. You got to do it. And the thing is this, you know, and I'll comment on what, obviously you've probably already sensed what I think about that suggestion, but I'll comment on the advice in a moment. But, you know, I don't know if Ezra felt pressured to do what he did. I don't know if there were any other suggestions that were handed to Ezra in that room. But what we do know is that Ezra immediately agrees. And then they all, all the leaders take this oath to do it. And then, so Ezra then goes and he prays overnight and he fasts overnight, which is awesome, which is great. But then what's interesting is that in the morning, he gets up, you know, in front of everybody, Uh, all his people, and he says, hey, if you guys don't all gather here in three days, he sends out this edict to all the people, all the surrounding Israelites, if you guys don't gather here in three days, you're going to lose everything that you own. That's huge, right? That's a big statement to make. Now, that can either be really good or it could be really bad, but what we do know is that why he wants them to gather is so serious that he's willing to threaten their livelihood. Okay, so it's pretty serious. So as they gather, they all gather, it says, the text says that they all get, people from all around Israel, they gathered in Jerusalem. And there he basically tells them in the rain that they've sinned grossly before God because they married these foreign spouses. Therefore, they must now divorce all their foreign wives or husbands. And if they've had children with them, they must send those children away as well. Why? So that we can now be pure. And so that now that the worship of God can be pure once again, and we can just be faithful to God, quote unquote. And then the rest of the chapter, which I didn't read, lists all the people that married foreign spouses. This is Ezra chapter 10. Now I'll be very honest with you. When I was a young Christian, I read Ezra. Ezra was one of the first books that I read when I first became a Christian. And when I, you know, and reading this chapter for the first time, honestly, I was very impressed. <laughs> you know, 
I was like, wow. I mean, I was like 20, I was like 18 years old, you know. I was like, wow, these guys took sin seriously. That's awesome. They were willing to like divorce their wives, man, and like kick them out of the country simply because they wanted to be faithful to God, man. That is like radical and awesome. And I was so impressed. They were willing to get rid of their children for the glory of God, you know? And I was like so, so impressed. And um, I was, you know, I was an Ezra fan, you know, from like year one. And so as a young Christian, to me, it seems so black and white. If the marriage was a sin, get rid of the marriage. And now you can be faithful, simple. And, you know, what's really funny is after reading that book as a young Christian, I took sin extremely seriously. I was like, oh, my gosh, if God thinks of sin that seriously, then, man, if these guys are willing to cut off their most precious possession in their wives and their kids, then I better be ready to cut off and amputate whatever needs to needs amputation in my life if I want to live a life of worship. And I'm very thankful to Ezra because it caused me to truly understand the seriousness of sin in God's eyes, right? And so, and I, and I, and I do still believe that's a good thing. I'm going to give you some practical suggestions at the end of my message today, but I truly do believe that cutting off sin is an excellent, excellent thing to do. Cut off destructive sins in your life. Hebrew even says, throw off everything that hinders so that you can run the race unimpeded. And so we shouldn't entertain sin or hold on to sin at all, right? But now, many, many years later, when I read this chapter once again, you know, I'm just not sure if what they did was the best solution to the sin that they were confronted with. You know, I know hindsight is always 20-20, especially if you're reading this after like being a Christian for 30 years, maybe after reading this thousands of years after it happened, hindsight is always 20-20, but maybe there was a better solution to what they should have done. You know, the thing is, though, I always try to give people the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they were so overwhelmed with guilt. Maybe to them the sin was so gross that they had to do something radical. You know, extreme uh, situations call for extreme measures, you know, extreme solutions, right? And and maybe that's what maybe that's what was going on in their hearts. But the, here's the main, main question that I want, that I feel confronted by whenever I, I read Ezra 10 these days is, is this what God would have wanted? Did the actions that they took in repentance, did those actions actually please God? And the thing is, the text doesn't say. But in my humble opinion, so it doesn't really count for that much, but in my opinion, I don't think so. I don't think what they did pleased the Lord. And I don't know if what they did is really what's best. And the reason why it's because they told everybody to get divorced. And we've been talking for the past two weeks about marriage and how, you know, the sanctity of marriage, why God created marriage, why marriage was you know, created in the first place, the design behind marriage. And if we learned anything, all marriages were for the glory of God. You know, man and wife were, are to be together so that God could be glorified through their union, right? And not, not only that, but we also said in the past few weeks that the gospel itself the Bible itself is a story of a marriage between us and God, right? And, and it's, a, it's a marriage that can never be broken, no matter how unfaithful we are to 
the Lord. And that's why, you know, when we think about marriage, you know, we talked about it last week, but marriage is for believers and they're only to marry believers so that they can live out faithfully God's purpose in marriage. But the question, I guess, that we're confronted in this particular passage is, what if a believer marries an unbeliever? What are you to do? And so in this, that's, the, that's the case here. A lot of Israelites married foreigners who worship foreign gods. Are you supposed to divorce? And the answer is no. Okay. Over and over again, uh, God tells us both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that he hates divorce. That Those three words, I hate divorce, are there, I don't know how many times, four or five times in the Bible. And if we truly understand the story of the Bible and the gospel itself, it's actually when we've betrayed God and have been most unfaithful to God, that's when God actually committed himself even more to us by sending his most precious possession to die for us right? That's the exact opposite of divorce. When we were most unfaithful and most unholy, that's when God committed himself to us the most. That's the exact opposite of divorce. And so to me, when I read my Bible, the whole Bible preaches no divorce. Do you guys see that? So this advice to me goes against the rest of scripture. It goes against the gospel. So to force divorce upon believers to me, couldn't be the answer, right? And I think that's affirmed by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 to 16. The Apostle Paul says here, it says, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Big, a lot of verses here. But bottom line is, Paul is basically saying, that if you're married, if you're a believer and you're married to an unbeliever, do not divorce. But spend your marriage, spend your time in marriage showing your unbelieving spouse the worthiness of God through your life of worship. Right? Your mission now is to show how worthy God is for all of us as a family to follow after him, to worship him and to give him our lives and to make our marriage hopefully a one that makes him greater. Show your kids that as well, right? Do you guys understand that? So it's saying don't divorce, but instead increase your worship to show your unbelieving spouse how amazing and worthy God is to be followed. And so to make the Israelites divorce here, in my opinion, is the wrong answer. Not only does it violate God's heart and design behind marriage, but these spouses and children who have been now cast away, they're not gonna be one to God. Right? So not only does it violate 1 Corinthians 7, but it, it violates the Great Commission, period, to win all nations to the Lord. Right. Point being, this particular course of action that they took, in my opinion, violates the rest of Scripture. Okay, And we'll get to that in a second. Well, what should they have done then? You know, Eddie Bang, if you think you know better. You know, what should they have done? And this is my opinion. You know, once again, repentance at the end of the day... 
My, I think the problem that they had was they were looking at sin. If you look at every verse when they prayed, every verse when they wept or stayed up all night, it says very specifically they only thought about their sin. And I thought, wow, you know, repentance is not about me thinking about my sin. Repentance is about us focusing, focusing upon the worthiness of Christ and God and what he did above, you know, for us because of our sin. You know, what Christ accomplished for the, on the cross for us should always trump the evilness or the wickedness of our sinfulness, right? And so I always feel, I feel like if they really spent time with God, they would see God and they would be able to talk with God and they would be overwhelmed by his love and his forgiveness, you know, and then they would receive his wisdom to take action after that. And to me, maybe it's my imagination, but if they truly, once again, reconnected with their first love for God, maybe it's my imagination, but... I got to think that God might have shared his heart with the lost, you know, like for their wives or their husbands or their kids. Maybe God would have given them wisdom on how to show them how worthy he is and maybe to love their spouses and their children better in a powerful way that wins them to the glory of God, you know. Repentance, in my opinion, should not have broken families apart, but should have brought the people of God together to make God greater. You know, instead of breaking apart holy unions, they could have mobilized, you know, to strengthen the church instead. That's my opinion. But they but they didn't. They chose divorce. And this story that started out so focused and so awesome with them praying and weeping beautifully ends now with everyone just focused upon sin. You know, it even ends with let's list and name and shame all the people who got it wrong. That's how this book ends, right? Uh, this story had all the potential to end on such a high note, but it ends in such a confusing and disappointing way, right? So what's the lesson for us? And let me just share uh, this. Obviously, today's message is about repentance. If you don't know, repentance is this Christian word that basically means changing direction. That's what it literally means, changing direction, turning away from sin towards God. That's what repentance means. Turning away from sin towards God. We think it's just turning away from sin. It isn't. It's turning away from sin towards God. And, you know, the concept of repentance is actually pretty huge. And I've kind of narrowed it down to four components, okay? So I'm going to list them. Are they important for you to write down? I don't know. I don't even know who takes notes. But, you know, there's four things I feel like that's involved in repentance. Number one, it involves a sincere, heartfelt conviction of sin. You know, it's not this knowledge that, okay, that's wrong or that's bad, but I believe repentance has to involve this sincere, heartfelt conviction of sin. Oh, whoa, this really is wrong. And it's not just that it's wrong or bad, but number two, it involves realizing that this sin ultimately offends a holy God. It's not just that you feel that it's wrong or bad or it's not good for you. Ultimately, the reason why we feel the way we do, we feel guilt or we know it's bad is because we know that it has offended our God, our Father, right? It's personal in that way. Thirdly, it involves actually turning away from those sins upon your life, right? The actual physical act of turning away from those sins, not living those again. And fourthly, 
towards living a God-honoring life. You know, it's not just turning away from something, but it's actually building a life that honors God. To me, that is the process of repentance, those four things. And not only is each one of them super important, but I believe that repentance, in order for it to have true spiritual power within our lives, all four of those things must be equally engaged. You know, if I can narrow it down to two things, I kind of group them in two. I kind of believe that repentance has to be personal and practical, you know. Um, it's got to be personal, meaning that when we're faced with our sins and believe that we should turn from it, maybe we felt guilty. Maybe we catch ourselves in something that's not healthy or good. Or maybe someone points something out to us and we realize, oh my goodness, I've sinned. It's not that we just think that sin is bad, but it's because we know who God is. It's because we know what God loves and God hates. And we know and understand that, wow, what I just did, what I just thought really would have offended him. And so all of a sudden it becomes personal. Therefore, we consider the guilt that we feel or the emotions emotions that we have, we consider that not an excuse to run away from God, but a gift given by God to make us realize that what we really need more is God himself. And hopefully that drives us to hang out with him more. To me, there has to be a personal, I want, repentance has to be personal between you and God, you know? Without God, it's not really repentance, you know? Secondly, it's got to be practical. You know, real life changes have to be made, not only to avoid sin in the future, but more importantly, to build holiness into our lives. You know, we, we not only need reactionary change, but we need proactive change to make sure that we can live holy tomorrow. So repentance to me needs to be personal, but it also needs to be very practical. You know, and both must be engaged because repentance can become so easily skewed when only one is practiced or when one is practiced and emphasized over the other. You know, if you only have the personal stuff, these convictions, these feelings, but we don't make real changes within our lives, then all of a sudden we practice a religion that's based upon emotions. And one day, if you continue to do that, you're going to wake up one day thinking that, wow, if I just feel bad enough, that is good enough. And we don't do anything about it. We don't actually become more holy. We don't actually become more like Jesus. Do you guys understand that? Right? You know, when that happens, we're actually making repentance about us and how I feel about myself. God's no longer part of that picture. And you know what we call that? Self-worship. So let's go to the other side. And a lot of times, on the other hand, if you make it all practical and not personal, you become legalistic. You know, a lot of times, a lot of, a lot of Christians, they just make sure that they do what's right or they make sure that they're not doing what's wrong. And it's good. But the problem is when you only concentrate on those things, a lot of times your trust can now rest in what you're doing rather than in God himself. And your faith, your faith once again, quickly turns into what? Self-worship because repentance has now become this legalistic process that makes you feel good about yourself rather than a personal act of worship to the Lord, right? So, do you guys understand that? You can't, it's, it's hard. And repentance, repentance is hard. It's not easy, right? But repentance must be both personal and practical. So I'd like to give you five suggestions to help you with repentance in your life. Number one, focus upon Christ. Meditate upon the gospel. Once again, I feel like the biggest mistake 
that Ezra and these leaders made in this passage is they solely focused upon their mistakes. Every verse in chapter 10, when they prayed, when they wept, when they did, they only focused upon their wickedness. And that's what the verses all say. You know, maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm misreading that or something, but nothing good can come out of focusing upon evil. You know what I'm saying? Nothing good can come out of just focusing upon your own wickedness. They spent all night meditating on their mistakes. Instead, what they should have done is they should have meditated upon God and his character, his worthiness, his beauty, his love, his endless forgiveness, his covenant and commitment to them, right? If they had spent their night meditating upon him, I can only imagine that they would have woken up with a different perspective towards their sinfulness, Right? But the bottom line is no good can come out of meditating upon ourselves. But when we fill our minds with truth, when we fill our minds with him and his character and his holiness, he will give us insight into ourselves. He will give us true paths towards freedom from our sinfulness. Right? He will lead us to wisdom. That's why the scripture says over and over again that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of holiness, which leads to our second point. Number two, talk to God, right? Talk to God. Simple, but literally talk to God. You know, Ezra and these leaders, whenever I read this chapter over and over and over again, and there's a, I don't know what they did all night. You know, I feel like if they were focusing upon their sins all night, were they really talking to God? I don't know. But they were talking about something. You know, but the thing is, but the, the, the result is that Israel and these leaders took matters into their own hands. They came to their own conclusions about what they thought was best rather than just spending time with him. And, I, you know, to me, maybe I'm too imaginative when I read scripture, but I wonder if I, you know, I wonder if they spent all night talking to God, sincerely talking to God. I wonder if God wouldn't have shared with them his heart for their spouses, for their unbelieving spouses, for their children. I wonder if God wouldn't have given them wisdom on how to heal those relationships and make those relationships God-centered, worship-centered. I wonder if God wouldn't have given these Israelite leaders wisdom on how to lead their people in a way that heals family, builds this uh, the people of God to be this worship-centered society rather than just destroying all of these marriages. I kind of wonder, um, I kind of feel like God would have shared his heart so that he could have led his people to a greater gospel wisdom. And I kind of wish that they had spent time just talking with God. Talk with God. I kind of feel like a lot of people, when they repent, they don't talk to God but they talk at God about their sinfulness. Do you know what I'm talking about? Did you ever do that? Instead of actually talking to God about your sinfulness and talking about God and thinking about God and who he is, they tell God a lot about though how they messed up. You know? Um, all to say, have you noticed that these first two points, of these suggestions, they're what Asians do worst. You know, we're bad at these things. You know, instead of focus upon Christ and talking sincerely about God of our sinfulness, about our sinfulness, you know what we do? We just spend time focusing upon our sins and we spend time in self-condemnation. I don't know what it is in, in our DNA, but we're like programmed just to make ourselves feel bad, even though we already feel bad about what we just did. 
right? But we love self-condemnation, and I don't know what it is. And we're so demented that there's a part of us that kind of thinks, oh, man, if I dig into myself even more deeply, that's like a little bit more holy, you know? It's just so demented, isn't it? But it isn't. It isn't holy at all. Do you know what that is? That's self-worship. That's self-worship too. Because at the end of the day, we're elevating our sins. We're elevating how we feel and how we make ourselves feel above what Christ accomplished for us upon the cross. We're saying, Christ, I know you forgave me and all that, but let me just focus on how bad I am because I want myself to feel even worse, you know, so that you can make myself feel better. But that's still about me and that's not about you, you know. Ultimately, the goal isn't a God-honoring life, but the goal is so that I can feel good about my faith, which is a little bit demented too. You know what I'm saying? We, we play all those games. But if we simply just focused upon Christ, if we just meditated upon the gospel, no matter what sinfulness we would have had or brought before the Lord, if we truly understood the gospel, oh my goodness, the gospel can now trump every sin that we bring before God, which is exactly what it accomplishes, right? So bring your sins before God. Meditate upon Christ and the gospel until his love and until his forgiveness consumes your heart, right? That's the key. Because what will happen after that is we'll end up in this state of worship, not self-condemnation, okay? And that's the goal. Meditation upon the gospel is essential for repentance so that our lives can now be about Christ and his worthiness and not about us and our unworthiness. Cool? Number three, cut off what needs to be cut off, okay? Cut off the sins that need to be cut off. Wait, hold up. I thought you just said that you were against what they did here in Ezra 10. I am. But the reason why I am is because I don't think they did the first two points, you know? But and, but let's be honest. There's a, you know, at the end of the day, in most cases, if you find yourself sinning, you should probably cut it off, okay? And I'll give you some advice about that. But sins like violence, slander, pornography, lying, idolatry. These are just a few examples. If you don't cut it off immediately, you know, the end of your faith is right around the corner. Those things can easily consume you. So it takes a radical cutting off of those sins in order for your faith to grow, right? However, this is my advice in light of Ezra 10. However, before you choose upon those actions, just make sure that those actions don't violate other parts of Scripture, okay? Just like I feel like these guys did with the whole divorce thing. You know, I, I asked someone once, hey, how come you don't go to church anymore? Obviously, this guy didn't go to church anymore. And it's like, oh, it's because every single time I went to church, man, all I did was gossip. So I decided in repentance to cut off church. <laughs> it's a true story. And I was like, I get it. But I think you cut off the wrong thing. You know, you should have cut off the gossip. You shouldn't have cut off the church. But, um, but you know, but obviously we need to cut off the things that need to be cut off. So just make sure that it doesn't violate other parts of Scripture. Cutting off church violates Scripture. We're commanded to gather and to help each other grow. Right? That's what the church is all about. And to make Christ great through our gatherings. So, you know, we need to go to church. Number four, build what needs to be built. Not only cut off what needs to be cut off, build what needs to be built. And the way I look at it is this. If you've been sinning, especially if it's a habitual sin and you've been sinning, if you cut that thing out of your life, you're left with a big hole that you're like trying to fill somehow, some way. And I can just tell you, fill it with Jesus, but that's hard, right? That's what my youth pastor told me. That's what my uni pastor told me. That's what my young adult pastor told me. But that's hard. I don't know what that means. 
But this is what I can tell you practically. You know, if you're, if you're cutting off a friendship that's unholy, now take that subject, friendship, and be a good friend to those who need it. Right? Practice good friendship towards others. If you're trying to cut off things like lying, I lie all the time, my tongue tells all these lies, then now make a commitment to use words to build other people up rather than deceiving people. You know, it's a very simple shift. You know, I love organizations like Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, those things, if you ever attend one of those, it's all filled with recovering alcoholics. I feel like this organization is an organization built on repentance. It's it's repentant people trying to help other repentant people live out their repentance. Do you know what I'm saying? And to do it in an empowering way. I feel like that's what the church should be. We should be people who understand we're all sinners. So don't judge. Hi, my name's Eddie and I'm a sinner. You know? I mean, that's what we should be. We shouldn't judge people for their sinfulness or their addictions, but we should realize that we're all sinners and we should be committed to helping each other overcome our sins together. And I feel like that's what the church should be, right? So build. Building is such an important part of repentance, right? Because we need each other's help to make it to the finish line, right? Let's build each other in holiness out of our weaknesses. Lastly, let's keep our focus upon Christ. Wait, hold up. I thought that was point number one. Yes, it is. But this is what I mean by that. You know, whenever I read Ezra chapter 10, if holy guys, Ezra was like the top priest of Israel, if holy guys like Ezra can make mistakes like this in repentance, then so will we. We're going to make, you know, if, if holy, if you're holy of leaders are making mistakes like this, we're going to make mistakes like that too. So uh, I've made mistakes. I've led other people to make mistakes, you know, which is horrific. But here we go. When we make mistakes, even in repentance, maybe we give bad advice to others on mistakes in repentance. Once again, focus upon Christ. Allow him to forgive you. Forgive yourself as well. You know, I I feel like repentance is something you get better at the more you mature in your faith, the more you mature in your walk with God and Christ. I feel like you get better at repentance. You know, when you're young, a lot of times things are so black and white, you know, and it's kind of beautiful when you operate like that. It's just, it can be destructive, but, you know, sometimes it's just, I wish things were more black and white. But as you get older and older, you realize that life is pretty complex, you know, it's, and so you realize you sin a lot more and there's so many more things to think about and repent about. Um, but the quality of our repentance, I believe, grows naturally with our maturity in our faith. So, you know, Continue to grow in your repentance. Continue you know, learn how to receive forgiveness from Christ if you make mistakes. Continue to seek after him, love others, and seek to build others in Christ. You know, repentance is um, absolutely essential in living out a healthy life of worship. I actually, honestly, very sincerely get sad when churches do not emphasize repentance nor teach about repentance as a healthy, regular part of your worship lifestyle. You know, my wife and I, we've attended churches for months where we never heard the pastor ever tell us to repent of our sins. And to me, that's unhealthy, absolutely unhealthy. It should always be a part of our worship lifestyle. You know, uh, know, as you guys know, I'm on crutches. You know, my ankle's been messed up for a while. And that happened at the beginning of this year. It happened like right at the end of the first week of January. So I'm absolutely frustrated about my ankle. But, you know, just like everybody else, I had this thing, you know, this year, 2020, I'm going to become more healthy. I'm going to eat more healthy. I'm going to exercise more. You know, if you thought I was sexy in 2021, just wait till 2020. I was like, I had this attitude. 
But then this thing happened and I'm stuck in my bed for like the past five weeks or I'm just stuck. I, I haven't exercised. I tried to eat well, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, that's the whole thing. I tried to eat well. But the thing is, because of my ankle, I've been on meds. I've been on painkillers, anti-inflammatories, all these things. And you know what that, you know what that stuff does to you if you take that regularly? It causes constipation. It is. That's what happens. And that sucks. Okay? It's, it's not very, very good. And so, you know what I realized? No matter how well you eat and no matter how healthy you eat, if you can't go number two, then no matter how healthy you think you might be, you are not healthy. And you are not in a good place. You are literally what? Stuffed. All right? That's who you are. You know, in the same way, I feel like repentance has to be a regular part of our worship lifestyle. You know, no matter how amazing your experiences with God may be, no matter how amazing these new truths about God you might learn, if you're not continually getting rid of sins within your life, I don't think there's any way you can be spiritually healthy. You know, we can fool ourselves into thinking that we're living this dynamic life of worship, but in reality, we're just stuffed, right? And that's what it is. I think we, we must regularly meet with Jesus so that we can regularly be confronted with our sinfulness, so that we can regularly be driven into the arms of Christ, so that we can regularly be overwhelmed with his grace, right? God always gives us gifts like guilt. God always gives us guilt, these gifts of repentance, opportunities to repent so that we would always be driven back into the arms of Christ so that we can always and regularly be overwhelmed by his love for us, his forgiveness for us, and his grace. There is always hope in his righteousness. So let's regularly allow his love to drive us into a lifestyle of repentance. Let's pray. You know, there's always hope in Christ. His love and forgiveness is always greater than your sins. His love and forgiveness, what he accomplished upon the cross for you is greater than any of your addictions. If that's you, come and focus upon him and what he accomplished for you upon the cross once again. Find love. Find forgiveness. Find hope in your freedom in Christ once again. And then allow him to speak to you so that you can make changes that honor him and build him in your life. Let's pray.
you so much for this journey that you're bringing us on, that you've brought us on through Ezra. Father, I'm so thankful that it concludes like this because all arrows point to Jesus. Father, we're sinners. We make mistakes. We're all human. But we thank you that every single time that we come to you, that we find love and forgiveness. We find your arms open wide, waiting to embrace us and to welcome us back into your family. Lord, we know there's a lot of people in this room and people even watching or hearing that really need your power and your help to overcome their sins. Lord, I pray that your grace, your forgiveness, number one, will always reign above any sin within their lives. And Father, we pray that your power will really rest upon their lives, not only so that they can turn away from their sin, but so that they can really live a life that runs towards you. Father, we pray that you would help them and Lord, we ask for all of us that you would draw us closer to you because repentance is not an exercise to make us better. But Lord, we know that repentance is something that allows us to see how amazing you are even more. So God, we ask that through our faith lifestyle, our worship lifestyle, that you continually grow your worthiness within our hearts. Help us to truly love you. For a lot of people in this room, help them to regain their first love for you, God, so that you truly, sincerely, from the bottom of their heart, would be number one, would be their greatest love and passion, that there will be nothing that can compare. And Father, through that, give us your wisdom to live a life that honors you and worships you and makes you great. Help us, because we need you to do that. And we thank you, God. We thank you for this church that helps each other do that as well. Continue to give us your love, your unconditional, unjudging love that allows us to help each other, embrace each other, build each other to become more like you. We thank you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.